So, when did counseling stop being about problem solving? Well, not anymore. Introducing solution-focused counseling with the unlicensed counselor. And now, here's your host, Steve Moak. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of The Unlicensed Counselor. My name is Steve Moak. I am The Unlicensed Counselor. And as always, especially grateful to be here today on this beautiful, beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona t- uh, day. And I'm uh, going to have a little bit of fun today. Brought some friends in studio. I'm going to be excited to bring them on and share a very interesting topic. One that I love to talk about, especially this time of year, is really kind of tips, strategies, ideas, thoughts around how to stay sober during the holidays. We are in peak party season, right? And so I brought in some friends. Some of you may know Seth Liebson directly to my left. Seth is a radio talk show host of 960 The Patriot here in Arizona, as well as a prolific writer and a personal friend as well. Seth, so grateful to have you on air as well, too. Again, I should say as well. And then another dear friend and also co-founder of the nonprofit, we started the Coalition for Youth Drug Abuse Prevention, my good friend Jeff Taylor, joining us as well, too. And Jeff is actually a person in long-term recovery as well, too. So especially interested to hear some of your thoughts, tips, strategies, or any ideas that you may have that could help other folks that are listening to this across the country so gentlemen thank you so much for uh for taking a few minutes out of your day to kind of chat with me but before i get started Give me one minute to say thank you to our sponsors. A big thank you to ShareTech. Again, if you listen to this, you know I talk about the ShareTech at-home drug and alcohol screen. If you are in the market for a drug or alcohol screen, please Google ShareTech. Go to their website. Pick up this test. It is what the leading treatment centers use for their at-home testing, specifically for their outpatient programs. It tests for the most substances. And it is an uncheatable test as well. It doesn't mean that people don't attempt to cheat. It's just that the ShareTech test actually has measures in there to find out when they do try and cheat. And we present that on a report that is sent to you as well, too. And then also, I've been mentioning the nonprofit. It's just so fitting that we have Seth, who's also a co-founder of uh, the Coalition for Youth Drug Abuse Prevention. Go to thestopstartshere.org. Find out exactly what we're doing with our youth drug abuse prevention messaging. We just shot some new content that I'm very, very excited to kind of roll out over the next few days and weeks. So go to the website, thestopstartshere.org. Follow us at Hard Stop Official. You know, I have always said, and maybe you guys have heard me say this, this is, I think, some of the most important work that, that I've ever been a part of. And I'm very excited to fill kind of this youth drug prevention space that, that really meets social media, so finds kids where they're at. So, uh, yeah, Seth, co-founder. Jeff, co-founder. Myself, co-founder. But today we want to talk really drug prevention, tips, strategies for kind of going into the holidays. So really, I want to open it up for discussions. I'm going to put some questions out there. And, and Seth, you're a professional at this. Feel free to fire back at me if you have any thoughts or want to push me a little bit on some of these topics as well, too. Well, thanks, Steve. It's good to be back. And thank you. And it's good to be with you, Jeff, my brothers. Uh, the three of us, along with uh, Hugh Hallman and our friend Steve, we organized a coalition for youth drug abuse prevention because no one was doing the prevention messaging in the space of substance abuse and addiction. And I'm at a handicap with you two. I could listen to you two speak all day. And uh, on my own show, I have you both usually on about this time every year because this is a particularly tough time of year. I work mostly in the prevention field, and you guys have joined me uh, in this effort. But I'm at the handicap because I'm not, though I've been around for over two decades, 
recovery and uh, rehab, I'm not in it, as you two are very publicly, uh, as, you, as you two both publicly are. Um, and that's why I'm about prevention, because you two, whenever I hear you speak or whenever we get a chance to speak together or present in, a, in an auditorium or in another forum together, I always want to point out that you two are miracles. You guys both beat the odds. Uh, people hear your stories. They're uncommon stories. And anyone who knows anyone who's been through addiction knows that relapse is very common, almost as common as not relapsing once you do get recovery, if you get to recovery. So our thought was better to never start. And that's what we work on in the coalition. That's what we work on with the stop starts here. But I do want to talk to you guys about strategies, uh, especially this time of year. No one ancient book of Jewish wisdom, the Talmud, says no one can stand in the space of someone who returns, someone who comes home, the prodigal son in a sense. And it's been my experience with people with long-term recovery, like both of yourselves, you have an extra special and an extra strong message to people, those who are in recovery and those who do struggle. This time of year, surprisingly, 12-step meetings are a little emptier, and surprisingly, or not, Use goes up, relapse goes up. So my hope was to kind of help give your audience, Steve, uh, the message that you and Jeff preach um, in your daily lives, both when you're talking and when you're not talking, about how people can stay sober through these challenging times. It's so well said, Seth, and thank you for for sharing that, and thanks for the kind words as well, too. You know, I don't often step back and not pat myself on the back or things like that. But, you know, I, somebody asked me how I had breakfast with a friend yesterday and asked me how long I've been sober. And I was like, well, it's like nine and a half years. And sometimes I even say those words out loud and it's just like, holy cow. I remember, you know, not that far from here, walking into a detox facility and then into a treatment center and, and what my life looked like then and what it looks like now. It, it really is. It is a miracle is a strong word. And I certainly hate to apply it to myself. But when you think of it that way, it, it really is. You know, speaking of a miracle, Jeff, in kind of your story and your background, and maybe if you want to share just a touch of of kind of how you landed in recovery, I've heard you speak so many times and seen the emotion that comes out of you when you share it. I don't want to try and do it justice. So maybe kind of how you found recovery and maybe we start the conversation there, Jeff, and then take it to where you want to go. I was just thinking that everybody's different. You know, I was thinking about, you know, what tools can you have? you know, in your toolbox for going into the, into the holiday season. And it brought up a couple of memories. And one was what it used to be like. And what it used to be like was we, I didn't come from a family of big drinkers when it came to Christmas. The first exposure I had to someone drinking at Christmas was I was sitting at a Phoenix bus stop. I was in maybe grade school, maybe middle school. And a gentleman came up who was talking about how he was looking forward to Christmas because that's when he really, you know, drinks a lot during Christmas. And Mm. I thought, God, that's not, that's not my world. You know, New Year's is a different story, but you know, these are two, I mean, you have families that celebrate and they do, um, you know, a lot of alcohol, a lot of partying over Christmas. It was not part of my family, but I think they saved up for, for New Year's. So the short story is, is, you know, as far as my path to recovery, as I grew up here in Phoenix, and uh, last of six children, great family, very supportive family, very philanthropic family. They taught me a lot about community, being a good citizen, citizenship, 
um, you know, government, how important it is to learn American history, which Seth is a scholar at. That's why I love your show so much, is I always get a lesson in American history when I listen to the show. And if you don't, if you don't have a past, you know, you don't have a presence in today. You don't have an, an, an appreciation for, you know, what this country is and how it got to be. And so these were things that were instilled in me growing up. So I can't blame anything, you know, on my addiction. Um, I did not use drugs or alcohol in high school. I'm what you call a late bloomer. Uh, I did not smoke weed. had some brothers and sisters that did. But I was into sports and into school. I ended up going to an NCAA school. Now I can say their name because they're playing rather well, which is the <laughs> University of Arizona Wildcats. Yes, that's right. Fantastic season. Just lost half the audience. Right? Yeah, I did. Right. We, can, we can almost see them right there. Right. I can see ASU from here. Right. So it, it was an experience that I had looked forward to and worked hard to achieve and then was injured and was given narcotic pain medication. You were a football player, right? I mean, Correct. I don't know if they if they heard you say it. Did I miss that? No, but yeah, I you know, were right. Division One college football player. I mean, that's a big deal. And it, and it was a big deal. And I'm playing with men now. I mean, you know, high school and the difference between high school and college uh, sports is it's a vast difference. So was injured, had never experienced an injury before, and it was a career-ending injury in those days. Uh, it was a knee, uh, you know, ACL, which they could, they just started to repair at that time. They usually just left it. But no contact sports, you know, after an ACL back in those days and was given narcotic pain medication. And I'm feeling anxious, some anxiety, falling behind in school. I'm on crutches. It's a huge campus. All of these things are weighing on me. And then I take a pill and then all of a sudden things are better. What I call a false sense of well-being. Because nothing in my life changed except that narcotic hit my, my bloodstream. And then tragically, my mother ended up committing suicide during this two-week period. And, you know, high-functioning, super-educated, lovely person, no note. It's just one of those suicides. Oftentimes, suicide is, is not explainable. And this is just one of those suicides. So now I'm grieving, and then I take a pill, have anxiety, I take a pill. I'm br- training my brain to feel better. So I'm grieving, take a pill. All of a sudden, you know, that grief and loss is lessened. So I'm kind of training my brain that whatever's in this thing or whatever's in a substance works for me. Didn't get addicted, but it parked in my brain. Got out of school and then was thrown into the shark pit of, you know, being a Wall Street securities trader. I say Wall Street, it's a Wall Street firm. Um, My office, my trading office was right up the road here in Scottsdale. And that was a very enabling business at that time. I don't know if either of you have seen The Wolf of Wall Street or even Wall Street. I mean, Wall Street was really, that was really an accurate depiction of of what goes on on Wall Street and the greed that runs Wall Street. And because of that greed, it becomes very enabling. If you are making money for yourself, your clients, the firm, then people just kind of look the other way. So survive that um, hidden didn't really survive it, but I was able to keep it hidden. That's my survival mode. So was it was it escalating the use? You think absolutely, Kinda, and you're just hiding it really well at the uh-huh. time. Absolutely, and my biggest fear to that point, Steve, was my biggest fear was being found out. Got it. And man, you will protect that addiction. In that, boy, if I got found out, boy, they're going to send me to rehab. Did you think you were an addict at that point, or at some point before? 
for? No, because I was showing up to work every day and I was continuing a successful path. Highly functional. And was able to basically retire from that business when I was 29 years old. I got lucky. I'm not this brilliant trader. I got very lucky on a once-in-a-lifetime trading opportunity. But I made a good living, you know, up to that point. So now I retire. I was married at the time. Uh, we, uh, myself and her family, built a house overlooking the Pacific down in Mexico. And during this time of, you know, kind of a meteoric rise in my career, looking good on the outside but dying on the inside. So I leave the business and have a lot of time on my hands. And my big retirement lasted four years. So this is the power of addiction okay. for me, is looking great, have all of these things that, you know, uh, car, house, you know, relationships were still intact. And within four years, I've lost everything in living on the streets of Phoenix. Now, that doesn't make me a bad person which was stigmatized back in those days that you were a bad person. Right. That is a moral issue, and you're a bad person. I was not a bad person. I had a bad drug problem, and I needed behavioral health treatment, but it was being treated in our criminal justice system. So I was being arrested for being homeless. My crimes escalated to the point of sitting in front of a judge, and the judge, and this is a very long story, really shortened, but the judge had really the ability to send me to prison or send me to rehab. And he said, Miracle sent me to rehab, which didn't even occur back in those days. It wasn't even part of the plea agreement hmm. that he had in front of him. And actually was bound by the plea agreement to send me to prison. And he broke away from that. And he sent me to long-term residential drug treatment at the Salvation Army here in town. And that was the beginning of my path to recovery. I I know more details of that story, and I can't wait to dig into it a little bit more. But thank you for sharing, first off. It, it, it is powerful stuff. And the fact that you had all this on the outside, and I think that's probably really relatable to a lot of people and just kind of that hiding the thing behind, you know, whatever it is. Seth, when you hear that, and we, you, you run in circles and know lots of interesting people, you know, when you see people out at parties and things in this time of year and you kind of have an inkling maybe something's going on, what do you think that, you know, we should be doing or should we not be doing in terms of addressing it, not addressing it? I don't know. It just seems like we all go to these parties or events. And again, you run in some neat circles and things like that. It's like, you know, we're going to bump into this. Should we do something? Should we not do something? Well, it's such a great question, Steve. And thank you for that, Jeff. I could hear your story any number of times in your story. You know, it's interesting. You listen to both of your stories, and uh, the chapters are different, but the ending is the same. And you can relate, and that's kind of the magic of what takes place in recovery. I was listening to you, Jeff, long way to get to your answer, Steve, but I was listening to you talk about people's past. And when I think about prevention and addiction and recovery, I tend to think of a great line from Oscar Wilde which is that um, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Mm. What you guys got is available to anyone who wants it. And it doesn't have to cost 30000 or $50,000 a month. There are a lot of helpers out there. You guys are helpers. You're available. They can reach out to us if they think they may be struggling. But when I go to these parties and what I hear you talking about, Jeff, and I've heard in elements of your story, Steve, is... When people initiate use, and Jeff was a late bloomer, usually right. the statistics show initiation starts a lot younger, middle and getting school, younger. and getting younger. People are trying to change their normal. 
They're trying to change the way they feel. We've put a lot of pressure on young and our youth. And what's interesting to me about that from the cold area of public policy, which I, I tend to work a little bit more in, what's interesting, over the past 10, 15, 20 years, we've never poured more resources into mental health in our youth than we have in the history of the United States. The last 20 years, the last two decades, whether it's emotional and social learning kinds of stuff or whether it's uh, psychological and psychiatric kinds of stuff and interventions and education, we have never poured more resources into our youth on those kinds of mental health uh, strategies and programs than we have over the last two decades. And yet we've seen a rise of mental health deficits and drug and substance abuse and addiction at the same time. And what that tells me is we're doing something wrong. We're doing something very, very wrong, at least from the professional's level, which is why I love that you're the unlicensed counselor, <laughs> because you're coming at it as you come from it, experience. Correct. And it's about changing your normal and about changing the way you feel. And that's what I see going on at parties. And I heard you almost say, Jeff, and I'm sure you've said before, that you, um, you on the outside had one way of looking and on the inside had a different way of feeling. And I think a lot of people at these parties, a lot of the people at these receptions are comparing their insides to other people's outsides. You never know what's wow. going on in someone yeah. else's life, but the duty is to feel good about yourself. And the duty is, I think, to feel strong about yourself. I just want to give a message to parents and then I'll stop talking for no, a moment. No, you're good. But I love this message about parents and what, you guys have talked about was alcohol and opioids, and opioids are the big deal right now, particularly fentanyl. The statistic that's important for parents and young people to realize, the vast majority, vast, over 80% of youth fentanyl deaths are not from people with long-term drug problems. It's one and done. You go to these parties, and someone hands you a pill that they tell you is one thing, and if it didn't come from your doctor or your parent, I'm begging you, please don't take it. I'm begging you. You don't know what's in there, and it's way too common that it's something that's going to be dangerous and poisonous and too often deadly. We are losing 112,000 Americans a year to drug overdose. We call it drug poisoning because right. there's no such thing as a safe dose of an illegal Correct. and dangerous drug. 112,000 a year. Last year was 110,000. The year before that was 108,000. It's going up and up and up. And that's why we thought we needed to do something about it. So please just don't do it. There are helpers. You're a helper. You're a helper. Find the helpers. Well, and I also want to reiterate that let's start having these conversations earlier with the parents as well, too. I mean, I'm talking middle school because that, that, First age of use is right around what we're seeing in seventh grade now, right. right? I mean, I think a lot of people think you get into high school, you get exposed to smoking. In a high school, that's where we like first started getting prevention right. messaging, right? Right, mm -hmm. right. It's got to be earlier. Much earlier. And, and you know what I love about what we're doing is, you know, I think that the once a year annual assembly approach is nice. I think it's if you get it's at least an effort at prevention. Right. But, you know, I, I've heard you say this, you know, often and I'll probably butcher it. But if you were trying to learn Spanish, would you go for one hour a year to try and do it? Or would you have to have consistent kind of messaging and saturation and learning in order to observe, uh, absorb that skill? And I really think that's what we're doing. That's the differentiator in using social media to kind of get to our messaging out. Well, that theoretical has been proved by the actual because we have had these crises at various times in our history. And you guys are probably sick of hearing me talk about this. 
but 1979 was the worst year of drug use in this country until two years ago. It was the worst, but our country rolled up its sleeve and did huge amounts of prevention messaging like you talked about. You couldn't turn on the TV without seeing a prevention right. message. You had buttons, you had actors, you had Hollywood, you had athletic organizations, you had everyone running for office and everyone in office talking about this issue. And that stopped. And guess what? Two years ago, we beat that high water mark in 1979. And this year, we beat last year by 13%. But when we were serious, from 1979 to 1992, we reduced it 65%. We can do this. So what, what do you have to say to people that say prevention messaging doesn't work, that this is your brain on drugs didn't work or dare didn't work? Because I encounter that, not a lot, but people are like, was that effective? Did it work? Did it not work? How do you respond kind of to, to those points when people push that out there? Well, of course it worked. And that's what I say. <laughs> and, and, and all you have to do is look at the data and disaggregate any part of that data you want. We started getting serious in the early 1980s with that kind of prevention messaging. And by 1992, we had reduced drug abuse, regular drug use in this country by over 65%. And if you think about reducing that in any other social pathology in this country, whether it's homelessness or whether it's poverty or you name it, there would still be ticker tape parades. And we got it down to about 7%, 6.5% in this country, and then we stopped. This is a uniquely American thing. We focus on a problem, and then we give up and move on. And you look at what has happened yeah. since we stopped the prevention messaging. Instead, what have we messaged? We have messaged with notions of, quote-unquote, safe use, which right. is probably the greatest lie in this legalization country. Or legalization or recreational or whatever use. it is today. You can use this as medicalization. You can <laughs> use this to feel better. You know, we are now a very high society. 16.5% of Americans regularly use illegal and dangerous drugs. 16.5%. Our high water mark was 14. We got it down to 65 We stopped. We're now at 16.5%. You tell me what worked and what didn't. And that's kind of a false um, statistic because when you say illegal drugs, what about altering reality in a big way with 60% THC content marijuana, right, which correct. is legal right, in many states, and yet people are still altering reality correct. in a big way. So right. that 16% is really low. Well, and don't get me started on you know the ketamine, the mushrooms, right. the microdosing, and everything that's trending out there now. I mean, because I just think that's the next tsunami that we're going to get hit with as Jet, well. Well, it's coming. Uh, you know, we tend to focus on a flavor of the half decade. And when we look at the trajectory of prevention, you know, we started with cocaine, and then we did heroin, and then we did crack because crack cocaine was an issue. It's kind of been a whack-a-mole thing. And everyone's been talking about fentanyl for the last couple few years. And they're right to do so because it is the number one killer. But guess what? In about five years, the word trank is going to be on everyone's yep. mind. You saw two people on trank in your neighborhood. I didn't realize. Lost 4,000 people to trank. Really? 4,000 people to trank last year. We just learned about it on my radio show a year ago. It was only in regional places in the Northeast. It's Philadelphia. Is Philadelphia where, yeah. and, De and Delaware. That's yeah. exact, You're exactly right. Mm -hmm. And this, by the way, is not anything Narcan can touch. If you think you can resuscitate from Trank, you can't. Mm -hmm. It's the zombie drug. You want to tell people what you saw yesterday? So in my neighborhood. This was yesterday? You're, you're yesterday. Wow. And I called Seth. And I r drove right past two individuals that were, and, and it does hit the homeless population rather, you know, because they're, they're medicating their homeless situation. And it's cheap. And 
the best way I can explain it is that you are basically passed out standing, if that makes any sense. You're not losing your balance or anything. You're not, you know, weaving back and forth. You are frozen and bent at the waist with your arms just raised slightly. It's kind of like the trank pose. And I saw two individuals on my neighbor's yard, in their front yard, just standing there um, like, a, like a statue, yet conscious to some extent. How are we allowing this? It, it blows my mind that we're just, that this is, and we should be helping these folks. This isn't being critical. I want to help them by, you know, getting them, if it's mandatory or against their will, into a center where they can get better. I, I don't so see it, the harm in that. What really hit me on what Seth just said, and that is, is how we feel on the inside is really dictated by looking at other people's outside. And social media is like throwing gasoline right. on fire in that we have influencers, we have people in Hollywood, we have people that are just famous for being famous, and they're wearing designer clothes, and they're getting out of limousines, and they're wearing the dark, big dark sunglasses at night, right. you know, and they'll even hire photographers, some of the influencers, to take pictures of them, you know, as they go into some restaurant. And here is a young person sitting at home saying, I've never been in a limousine, I've never, you know, right. had designer clothes, and I've never been in a restaurant like that. And so that image has tremendous effect on how they feel on the inside. So I, I wanted to talk about a little bit of some tools that I used during the holidays. You, you hit the nail on the head. And what, you know, in the unlicensed counselor world, right? I, and one of my things is I try and give bite-sized take-home information. I mean, straightforward, direct, tangible things somebody could put in place today. So I'm glad that you're going there. So what do you have? I mean, we hear all this and parents are going, ah, and maybe they're thinking about it for themselves and not just kids, by the way, just in during, during this time. Hit me with what you think, you know, things that we can do. Someone could hear this and go, I'm going to try that tonight, tomorrow, this weekend at that party to try and make a difference, mm -hmm. kind of getting through the holidays. If I can add yeah, to go. that question, Jeff, and I'd like your answer on this too, not just that person, but how about the person that's been okay for about a month having come out of it? Mm. You know, this is a very challenging time, that month, two months, three months, someone in early sobriety, if you would. And, and th those are the points that I will yep. make as I go back to early sobriety because that was the most difficult. Yep. You know, I'd never gone through a holiday season without using mind-altering substances. Never had, yep. you know, at least in my adult life. Yep. And so what tools worked for me? And I like to keep this really simple. And one is if I think in my brain today, how am I going to get through New Year's without drinking? Then that becomes overwhelming to me. But if I can think, how do I get my bed to the hill, my head to the pillow tonight? without using drugs or alcohol, then that's manageable. You know how, I'm not gonna think about Christmas, that's 10 days off, and then you add five more days, then that's New Year's, six more days, that's New Year's. I don't think out that far. I think, what do I have to do between now and bedtime? And there are a lot of different things that I can do. I was having a bad day the other day, okay? And it, I, I was just kind of frozen in, uh, you know, the business that I'm in, which is public policy. And I was kind of caught in between, you know, where do I go? I was at a crossroads and I had no idea. Usually I have an idea. So I do a couple of things. One is I pray about it because when I'm stuck, I don't know what to do. You know, then my God directs me. Love it. Not when I want him to, you know, usually it's down the road. I want right now. And That's how we think. I know, I, I feel it. So what I did to make myself feel better is I went and volunteered, you know, and, and I volunteered in a, in a warehouse that distributes toys to the disadvantaged in our community and, and worked and I felt great at the end of the day. We just want to feel better. 
So how do we feel better without mind-altering substances? So there's one simple thing is just think about what can I do today to make myself feel better? Pick up the phone, talk to people. The opposite of relapse or use is connection. Yep. And when you're sitting at home alone, then you become a victim of your own mind. And usually it'll spiral out of control very quickly. So what you need to do is break that, pick up the phone. And it's difficult to do. We call it the two-ton phone. But once you do it once and it works, then it's much easier the second time. Isolation and loneliness are deadly. Isolation and loneliness are deadly. I would say not even for addiction, by the way, too. I just think, and I do think we have a loneliness and isolation problem. I think one of the things you and I actually, and I was going to see if you were going to say it next, is exercise, Jeff. I mean, before the mics even heated up, I think you just said you did a 33-mile mountain bike, you know, this morning. I don't recommend that, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I was in my hot yoga. My my audience is annoyed with how much I talk about hot yoga. And it's just that... It's getting out and challenging yourself and whether it's the sweat or getting out, you know, whatever it is that takes your mind off of things, you know, let alone the chemical things that happen when Mm -hmm. you sweat and exercise like that. I mean, I think for me, it's one of the biggest things. But also, I like to make sure that I have a support network. Network could be even broad. It could be a person or two that when I'm feeling really crappy or down which I don't let myself get that far down typically. But again, I'm nine and a half years removed from my last drink. But you did in the beginning, I bet. I 100% did in the beginning. And I did have probably even a broader network at that time. But I made sure that I always had somebody I can call. Call it a sponsor, call it a friend, call it an uncle, call it clergy, whoever it is that you can get pick up that two-ton phone and make that call because it really does make the difference. And again, I'm, I'm a big proponent. You know, I talk about the 12-step in AA. It's something I use in my life. It's something that I see work successfully for others. A lot of people bag on it, beat up on it. I find a lot of great value. If you're really up against something, there are other groups like that that I encourage people to attend. Or ask somebody that you know that maybe is involved in those because it can be a little scary or intimidating walking into a room like that. But trust me, there are a lot of sobriety dates around Christmas, New Year's, and things like that. So you're not the first person to walk into that room during this time of year and go, okay, I, I, I think I need a little bit of help. Right. So those are a couple of things that stand out to me. Any other thoughts? So beyond the bus bench, when I was talking about earlier, is then I had this long history of not feeling very good on New Year's morning. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't. You know, people without drug problems, they just don't. And I remember this very first New Year's as I got on my old junky bike and I rode about six miles, which is all I could do at the time. <laughs> and I went to a, believe it or not, a 6 a.m. New Year's Day 12-step meeting. And that was one of the best times I ever had. I, I felt great I on New Year's morning. I felt accomplished and I was surrounded by people that felt great and accomplished. And I'll never forget that day. That was my first New Year's morning where I actually felt good. Awesome. Love that. I want to test something by you because I think this might be a good message for people in the the audience too, if it's true. A lot of people in early sobriety, particularly with alcohol and party time, party season, and they're always worried about, uh, or they have, that they're worried that if they're not drinking an alcoholic beverage, they're going to stand out. And what they have learned when they go to these parties and just have a soda water or a Coke or Coca-Cola or something like that is they realize, you know what? People aren't really paying that much attention to what you're drinking. They care about what they're drinking. The stigma thing is long gone. Don't let stigma 
be the enemy of your sobriety. I'll take it a step further. It's actually one of the notes that I made for this today. I think one of the cooler things that has happened culturally in the last, I don't know, two years or so is that sober's kind of becoming cool. I I mean, I'm not going to say it's the coolest, right? You know, we get it. But there is a trend that is, you know, people, it's kind of that sober curious thing that's happened. Sobriety chic, we call it. There you go. Call it whatever you want. But I think it's kind of cool that it's at least being kind of kicked around that you don't have to. I'm not saying that people used to have to explain themselves or why you were drinking, but I see even less and less in that at the social events. Yeah, I've got my club soda in my hand with the lime and you wouldn't even know. Make sure that there's no alcohol when you're ordering those drinks. Because, again, as I've always said, and Jeff and Seth have heard me say, I had one relapse that lasted a decade, and that was just <laughs> because of an accidental you know, pouring of vodka into a Red Bull. And that's a story and a show for another time. But it, it sober is kind of cool. And you're right, Seth. People don't notice, don't care, and especially give them an hour and a half yeah, at a party. They really They don't. care much less, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that, Jeff? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Right. You know, I've been doing it for a long time and nobody cares. Now, alcohol wasn't my thing, you know, and so my mind tells me, you know, that I'm not going to be sitting there with a pocket full of narcotics, you know, at a, at a, <laughs> at a, at a party <laughs> or waiting for someone who's going to bring me my pop. You right. know, that, that was But that is too true, by the way. That is too mm-hmm. true of our younger parties these days. Mm-hmm. People do show up with pockets full of narcotics. Yeah. They do. I mean, how do you afford it? Well, they afford it because the narcotics have become more powerful and cheaper. You know, did we learn nothing from OxyContin? Yeah. You know, where the opiate went from five milligrams to seven and a half to 10, all the way up to 80 with OxyContin. And that is the addictive quality. Same thing in marijuana and the THC content. That's the addictive quality. When I was in college, you know, it was five to 10% THC content. And when I was in college, people were getting plenty high off of that. And now that it's been monetized corporately, that that is the addictive quality. Yeah. And they saw what happened. And they're using, rather than being cautious of what happened with OxyContin, they're using it as a business model. How sad is that? It's a very, it is. Last couple minutes, Seth. Well, you know, I throw out a lot of statistics and a lot of policy stuff. And uh, sometimes I get lost in that because uh, that's been my training and my focus on this. But I do want people to understand how serious a pandemic we really do have right now with 112,000 deaths, mostly young adults. Um, Let me put it this way. That's in one year. Yeah, a year. One year. A year. Right. I, want, I want people to think about what it means to have two commercial airlines crashing into each other over our skies every day. That's what we're losing. A day. A day. You and I grew up learning a lot about AIDS. AIDS was a huge crisis in this country, tremendous. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing about AIDS. You couldn't go to school. You couldn't go a month without seeing a march or a public service announcement or buttons or ribbons or a quilt. AIDS had this nation's attention. Our worst year of AIDS was 1995, where we lost 50,000 Americans. 50,000 Americans. Now, I want people to understand what that means in today's context. When we're losing 112,000 Americans on drugs, our country grew 25% since 1995. We're losing more than 100% of that AIDS number 
by drugs every year. If we could do half as much attention on prevention as we know how to do with things like AIDS or for God, God knows COVID or other, other public health crises, we're talking about our brains, we're talking about our souls, we're talking about our young people's lives. The last thing I'll say is simply this. I do throw out a lot of statistics. Those statistics, those tens and tens and tens of thousands of deaths are driven by the obituaries we read in the newspapers every single day. Those obituaries are driven by friends, and if they're not friends, they're family. And if it isn't in your family or a friendship circle yet, it's coming. So just don't start. Thanks for saying that. One last point. Please. To the young people when you're at a party, or even even college age young people to me, right. and to you, and to you. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> or me, a lot more me. Is when you're handed a pill that you don't know what it is. Remember, they're counterfeit pills. Right. They look like the pharmaceutical. They all do. They look like the pharmaceutical. They may say it's a Xanax, which is very hard to OD on, but it's got fentanyl in it. So when they hand you a pill, imagine that they're handing you a revolver with one bullet in the chamber, and you're going to put that to your head and pull the trigger. That's what I would look at that one pill, as they just handed you a revolver with one bullet in the chamber. Now, there's five empty in the chamber, but are you willing to put that to your head and pull the trigger? Too many are. Mm-hmm. That, that's outstanding. I mean, that, I don't even want to try and say anything because I think the image, if we want to leave that with folks as we kind of close the show today, I mean, that's Russian roulette. I mean, you are playing Russian roulette with your life and it is just not worth it. I don't care if you think it's a sleeping pill or Xanax or whatever it is. Gentlemen, thank you no, so thank much. You. No, Gentlemen, this is you. outstanding. I want to do it again. Seth, thank you for taking the time today. Jeff, thank you for taking the time. That was excellent. Uh, I hope the audience really gives us a good listen, shares it with a couple friends. I mean, there is some good stuff that came through today here, and I appreciate you both, and thanks for the work that you continue to do for this community and nationally as Bless well, too. and Merry Christmas. All right. Well, my name is Steve Moak. This is the Unlicensed Counselor. Until next time, thank you very much.